Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Tara Fitzpatrick, who is a reporter with the Daily Record newspaper. Her work covers a whole range of areas, including live news, features and human interest, as well as crime. And she's also a court reporter, but hasn't been able to cover courts since the pandemic started. And while Tara works mostly with digital and social media, she also writes for print. Over and above that, she's also an arts writer and reviewer and has previously covered the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and theatre and live music across Glasgow. A graduate of Glasgow University, where she studied English and theatre, and then multimedia journalism at Glasgow Caledonian University, Tara also previously worked in local news, something she continues to feel very passionate about. Tara, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, obviously, when I was just reading the, the introduction there and the kind of what you do I'd probably be as well saying you just cover everything because, you, you know, you obviously have to be, a, in terms of journalism, particularly modern journalism, you have to work a lot across a whole range of platforms, but also be able to turn your hand to a whole range of different subjects. Yeah, definitely. There, I, I, when people ask, I normally say that I'll cover anything except sport. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, I'll, leave that, I'll leave that to the experts. But yeah, I mean, you really are, you don't quite know each day what you're going to be landed with or what's going to happen. So you have to be able to just turn your hand to anything, really. Because it's funny, when I, when I started, my first job in journalism was back in 1990. So very much, obviously, it was very much print journalism there. But even the mm-hmm. fact that you, you obviously studied multimedia journalism, because it's, you know, you, you're obviously working with digital and social media. It's such an integral part of being a journalist, because it's not just about the print. You know, the newspapers there, people know it, but a lot of what you're doing is having to go online and, and I suppose, react instantly to whatever's breaking at the time. Yeah, it's, it's really fast paced particularly moving into the daily record. I thought I was moving into a daily, but I often find that I'm working in a kind of hourly um, because the news is just changing all the time. I think that the skill set is still the same. You're telling a story, whether that be for social media, through video, through for print, you know, whatever the medium might be, it's about being able to tell the story in the most effective way possible. So the internal um, skill set that you need is probably still the same thing the same kind of gut reaction that you need when when something breaks but it's just been able to do it across all these different platforms and in different ways now and I suppose like everybody else how have you found the challenge of having to readjust your work not just even just where you're actually working but the kind of work you're doing over the, the course of the last year or so with this pandemic it's been it's been crazy we're I mean I'm working from home like like many people at the moment which is hard because if you'd asked me before one of the things I loved about my job was that I was always out and about. I love them um, face-to-face interviews with people um, or going to events. And that's, I mean, I can count on one hand the amount of times I've got to do that over the last year. So it's only really been when there's no alternative available. You've got to go to something um, or, you know, that brief period in kind of August, September when the restrictions were eased slightly and we could get out and about a bit more. But other than that, I've been at my dining room table trying to know what's going on in the world. It's been weird. I know, and I mean, you just touched on it there, the fact that, you know, obviously you do a lot of arts reviews and 
and features and that whole kind of live uh, industry, as it were, whether it's gigs, whether it's theatre performances, I mean, that's just completely wiped out at the moment, which is a, obviously a concern for everybody that's involved in that. But as people who would just go, it's something that I think everybody really misses. I'm living for the day that I can go to a gig again, that, you know, you can see live music. I am a big theatre fan as well. I used to work at the Tron Theatre in Glasgow, and then I've obviously been there as a reviewer and I've, I've, I've reviewed at the Edinburgh Fringe as well. And obviously, you know, there's been some digital performances in, in National Theatre Scotland have tried to kind of adapt for the last year, but it's just not the same. I mean, getting to go and see a live theatre performance is something that you can't really replicate in a digital format. So I'm, I'm really, really missing all of that a lot. Yeah, well, finger, fingers crossed, hopefully, 2021. Yeah. At some point, we can I know, all... I know, <laughs> Here's hoping, here's hoping. We'll see. Well, in terms of the podcast, obviously, what I do is always take guests back on the, the literary journey of their life mm-hmm. and get you to choose some of your, your favourite books. And we can have a chat about how difficult you found that in the course of the, <laughs> the <No> podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the first book I always ask people to choose is their, their favourite book from childhood. And the one that you've chosen is Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. And what was it that what was it about that book that made you choose it? Oh, probably for, for every category, I could say that it, there was multiple different things I could have chosen, but particularly for children's for children's books, there was so many choices, but I felt that a lot of them when I was when I was growing up, I was reading the Jacqueline Wilsons and the Voldal and Harry Potters and all the kind of the classics. I feel like we don't talk enough about Charlotte's Web here and how good it is. I think if you particularly in America it probably tops the charts of, you know, one of the best children's books of all time. But I feel like in the UK, we have such a canon of, you know, the Enoch Blytons and the Roldals, and we kind of forget about Charlotte's Web sometimes. And I just think it's a perfect book. I think it's great. For me personally, this was the first book I ever had bought for me. I was about four, going on five, about to start primary school. And it was probably read to me the first time. And then I reread it myself. And I, I just love it. I just think it's great. You can kind of, I think it's also very bearable for adults as well. It's not something that you would sort of put away at the end of your childhood. Um, you can come back to it and I think it would just still make you smile. It's so wholesome. Because I should say as well, for people, obviously people are only listening to this podcast, but you have, of all the books that you've chosen in the different categories, you do actually have the the, the copies of the books beside you as well, them, which, yeah. which I'm impressed. To, yeah, I find it easier to talk about a book when it's in my hands because I can kind of remember. I'm like, yep, I know what I'm talking about. Here it is. Um, the copy of Charlotte's Web I have is completely, you know, it's bent around the edges. It's really old. It's, you know, about 20 years old now. Thankfully, none of the pages have fallen out. But I love books like that where the kind of memory is in the creases <laughs> you can see. So yeah, it, that's a, another reason why it's so special to me. It's like one of my first books. Because I always think as well, and obviously I'm a big fan of the actual physical book. I mean, people can read in any format they want, and I think it's great. But, you know, just what you actually said there, it's just one of the most important things, I think, for books, particularly favourite books, is it's more than just the story within it. Because, you know, when you have that copy, it takes you back perhaps to the first time you read that book on your, your own or different memories. And, and that's what makes the actual book itself so special. Totally, I think so. I mean, obviously for children's books, especially, there's something so special about the physical form of the book. You know, you can have illustrations and stuff like that, which can make it, I don't know that you could really get an ebook that would compare. But as you say, it's about the memory that you have from the physical copy itself. I think this was the first book I ever had that was maybe more words than pictures. 
And I just remember starting school and feeling like I was really grown up because I had this book. And, you know, I was a, I was a proper reader because I had something that, that wasn't just pictures. So, you know, that memory as well makes it really important. Because it was interesting you had mentioned, you know, particularly in the United States, I think it's one of the most popular because we just went even, yeah. if you just check uh, in terms of the sales, I think the last film that came out, Adaptation, was something like 2006. And at the time, they were bringing out all these statistics and it had sold back then something like 45 million copies and it had wow. been translated into 23 languages. So even if, as you say, maybe other books have kind of superseded it in recent years, it's probably still, you probably find it's in most houses where parents are maybe trying to encourage their kids to read. Yeah, yeah, no, no totally. I think the film, the film with um, Julia Roberts is the voice of Charlotte. I mean, that's, I think a lot of people might be really familiar with that as well. It's, I love that adaptation. I think it's great. But but yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, I think it's a really good starter as well, because it's quite a, I, I find it to be quite a simple storyline, but it's also really dark. I mean, it's about death. And it's about loneliness. And, you know, those are quite important concepts for children to kind of come across. You know, we're talking about a book about farm animals, but um, there's a lot more to it, a lot more depth to it. Um, I think that's why it's lasted and it's got such a legacy. In terms of the, the United States, I've always had this fascination that over the years, they have quite often, whether it's individuals or religious groups or whatever, they challenge books that are maybe being taught in schools or been given out in public libraries and try and ban them. And apparently back in Kansas in 2006, so it's not really that long ago, they banned Charlotte's Web. Amongst the things they said was, talking animals are blasphemous and unnatural. And it's just like, it's trying to get your head around the thought processes of somebody who would challenge a, a children's book for that reason. I mean, I feel like if you're going to challenge Charlotte's Web, then there's not much that you're going to stand for. Actually, one of the things I was I was thinking about with Charlotte's Web is how, you know, I have quite an, a complex relationship with a lot of children's books because I studied children's literature when I was at uni. So um, I didn't specifically study Charlotte's Web, but I studied things like the Jungle Book, lots of classics where we had to go back and look at them with a critical eye, which is really hard because it can kind of then dampen the relationship you had with it when you were younger. When you look at something like the Jungle Book and you see it through the lens of like, colonialism and you think oh god and I was thinking about Charlotte's Web and about how it's so accessible to everyone and I don't think anything would ever come to sort of dampen it but I, I guess there you go there's there's always going to be people that, <laughs> that try to ban something I just I think it's great <laughs> I love that fact though and I also think as well I always feel that when when somebody wants to ban a book it just makes me want to read it even more yeah absolutely absolutely just to anger them but, I mean, it's not the only children's book with talking animals, is it? I mean, like, they must be banning everything. Because I don't, because I think as well, it's probably the same line of, I know there was religious groups in America didn't like Harry Potter because of wizardry yeah. and stuff like that. So I don't know if it's all wrapped up in that whole kind of religious fundamentalism. Yeah, the, the witchcraft and, and stuff like that. I, th- I think I think definitely. But, you know, one of the joys of children's literature is that you can suspend your disbelief so much and there's kind of nothing off limits. Um, I don't know why you'd want to stop children from exploring that. That's just mad to me. Well, if I can take you on to your teenage formative years choices, and then I wonder yeah. what the people who wanted to ban Charlotte's Web would think of your first choice then of, of Knots and Crosses by Mallory Blackman. You know, you've chosen that book. There's another book as well, which we'll talk about. But in terms of that book, is it that book or, or did you read the whole series? Because I know I think there's about five novels in that whole series. I did read the whole series. I know that um, the latest one has just been published. 
don't quote me on that, I think it came out fairly recently. Um, and so I've, I've definitely not read the latest in the series. But when I read Knots and Crosses, I then went out and got the sequels um, when I was a teenager. This is quite an important book for me. I had, I think probably like many people, when I got to high school, I had a bit of a reading slump. Um, I was a big reader when I was in primary school and then I got to about 12, 13 and I went through that phase where everything's embarrassing and you don't want to do anything. And I definitely didn't read for about a year, maybe two. And Knots and Crosses was recommended in school. So I picked it up and I just devoured it. It was the first thing in a long time that had made me you know, really fall back in love with reading. And I think because of the sequels, I then was going to bookshops to buy the sequels and then finding new things as well and kind of falling back in love with just visiting a bookshop. So I do, I thank this book a lot for, for like making me like making me a reader again. But I think also, the thing with Knots and Crosses, when I was 13, I think I was about 13 when I read it, this was probably the first thing that made me really consider race and, and think about race. When I was at school, we were taught, you know, the slave trade and Jim Crow laws, Martin Luther King, but I would probably have thought of race in terms of an American problem of the past. Thank God we don't need to deal with that anymore. You know, um, it was this real kind of textbook, schoolwork type subject. And obviously now, I mean, I can't speak for teenagers today, but teenagers today seem to be so much more engaged with on social media and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and social justice. When I was a teenager, that would have just been completely alien to me. So this book was probably one of the first things that got me thinking about stuff like that. So yeah, it was just really important for those reasons. Because the kind of basic story, it's almost kind of turning, I suppose, to an extent, colonialism on its head. So basically, yeah. Europe, you know, it's been Africans that have colonised Europe. And so it kind of turns that whole issue of race on its head, which is, it's a really clever idea to try, as you say, maybe try and get that young adult audience thinking about things that they've maybe haven't noticed before or haven't taken the time to think about. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a simple concept, just flipping it, but it's so effective. And the way Mally Blackman writes about it as well, the detail, I think, you know, obviously if you're Black or any person of colour is going to read this and have a completely different relationship to it, to what I had. But, you know, there's the really famous scene with the plaster, which is... Um, Callum, who one of the protagonists who's white, cuts his finger and the only plasters they have available are all for really dark skin. So you can see the wounds on his finger and he has to wear a really dark plaster. And that's obviously such a simple everyday scenario, but it would just never have occurred to me before. And the book is just full of that kind of thing that makes you really question what white privilege is and what it actually looks like. And how much you're so unaware of it within your everyday life. It, I think it's quite genius, to be honest. Because I think as well, again, I haven't actually read the book, but I know last was it last year or the year before 2019, it was named, the BBC did a poll of the 100 most influential novels. They didn't do it in any chronological or any mm-hmm. numerical order. It was just 100 books, and that was one of them. What it reminded me of, there was a, a book came out in 2016 called The Sellout by Paul Beatty. It won yes, a prize. I and read was, that. You know, there was elements of that where he kind of turned that whole idea. So it was like, a, I think it was a black man in, in Los Angeles wants to reintroduce slavery and it causes this absolute furore. And it was the kind of, it was a satire, but, you know, it was funny, but it, he was trying to make a point and get people to think about these issues and what mm-hmm. happens if you turn it all in your head. And there was wee elements of that when I was just reading about Knots and Crosses that reminded me of that. Totally. And the sailor, I mean, it, it really pushes the boundaries of, 
your comfort levels like I've ever reading the seller and just feeling so awkward <laughs> all the time but that's kind of the point that's the point of it it was interesting again when I was just doing some research on Mallory Blackman in 2014 she was part of this campaign it was basically called let books be books where she she and other authors were wanting to stop books particularly for children and young adults being labeled boys books or girls books which I think is a great idea because I just think you should just read a book because you'd think it's a good story. It shouldn't be for girls. It shouldn't be for boys. There shouldn't be a gender assigned to a book. She kind of, for me, she kind of tempered that later in the year when she was one of, I don't know how many so-called celebrities or famous people who signed this letter in the Guardian just before the, the Scottish referendum pleading for Scotland to stay part of the UK. And mm. It was an mm. anti-Scottish independence, which kind of disappointed me slightly. But yeah. Yeah, I wonder, I, I don't know what her thoughts on that are now, <laughs> maybe slightly different, but um, I do, yeah, I, I think like that, you know, that campaign itself about not gendering books is really important, particularly when you're, you know, her audience is mainly teenagers. Um, I think that's really important. I think Knots and Crosses probably was, but looking back, it probably was in my school kind of geared towards the girls slightly, because it is, essentially it's a love story. It's about almost this kind of Romeo and Juliet one character is white and one character is black and they can't be together and I could be wrong in saying this but I'm pretty sure that it was the girls who had it recommended to them which is just completely ridiculous when you think about you know one of the main protagonists in this book is a boy and it's about his life and his relationship with his brother and his family there's nothing gendered about it yeah, I think I think sometimes people just slip into those. It's just a, a lazy habit of trying to label books. You made an interesting point when you were just talking about how this book was so important for you in terms of getting you back to reading. Because I was actually having a conversation with, with somebody in work recently, and it was to do with this the upsurge in people playing chess in the back of the Queen's Gambit, having been this I'm one of those people. <laughs> yeah, me too. So um, I think I think we all are, and. Yeah. We were talking and saying that I remember being at school and it wasn't the sort of thing that MD would ever either play or admit to play. That it was kind of like, it, it was uncool to to admit that you played chess, I think, at school. And, and yeah. to an extent, I think, I remember, particularly high school, it was probably the same thing with books that you weren't, you know, maybe more so for, for boys rather than girls because girls are predominantly bigger readers. But, you know, you wouldn't be going in to see your pals and say, oh, I read this great book last night. It just wasn't the sort of thing that, which is a shame yeah. that, Maybe some people then become too awkward to, to read as they get older. I think I think that's definitely the case. I mean, I when I was kind of when I started in high school, I think it's just that phase of feeling like no one ever wants to be labelled weird in any way, and you kind of convince yourself that oh, if you read a book, you're a weirdo, or you can't like. I, I obviously, as I say, I can't speak for what it's like to be a teenager now, but definitely when I started high school, I, I felt like that for a while. But I think to be honest there would have always been a book that was going to kind of draw me back into reading at that age eventually and Knots and Crosses came around at the right time for me I discovered that at the right time it could have been something else but I think if you are a reader and you you know you enjoy stories and you enjoy being in other worlds something's always going to draw you back eventually anyway even if you do have that dip as a teenager for a while it's just a phase. And, and I suppose the other big question is uh, are you any good at chess now? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm getting really addicted. I do have the app on my phone, but I, I never win. <laughs> I'm terrible at it. We um, had a, a couple of games over Christmas. My mum has a gorgeous chess set. That I think it's from Dubrovnik. It's like a handmade, wooden, really, really artistic chess set. 
which is beautiful to look at, um, but I haven't yet to win a game on it. I'm really bad. <laughs> Just practice, practice, practice. Yeah. <laughs> I mentioned in, in terms of this category that you'd chosen two books. One of them was Knots yeah. and Crosses. The other book is The Finishing School by Muriel Spark. And did you read that later in kind of teenage formative years and, and why that yeah. book? Yeah, I so this is one of the categories where I just really couldn't narrow it down. I think also because that period of your life, you know, when you're entering adolescence to them when you're in your late teens and you're about to go off to university, it's such a kind of vast time in your life. You're such a different person at the two ends of that. So it made sense to kind of pick one from either end of that. And I just, I, I adore Muriel Spark. I don't know if this was the first book of hers that I read. Um, I would have been about kind of 16, 17. And I know that I was studying the Prime Miss Jean Brodie for higher drama. So that I might have read that first and then picked up The Finishing School, or it was the other way around. I can't really remember. But um, The Finishing School was like her first novel that I, I read by myself. And I, it's just hilarious. It's great. They're so accessible. They're really witty. Um, I'll, you know, her, her writing is so kind of satirical, but in a quite an accessible way for, for young people. I just think she's fab. Because <laughs> it's interesting, that's her, I think that was her, the last novel that she published. And yeah, I think I, I think it was, which is funny because it's one of the first that I picked up. Yeah, and, and I think 22 novels. But what, what I always think is amazing, that so I think that came out in 2004 and her first novel came out in 1957. So to, to be able to write to that standard for nearly 50 years and, as you, you know, spanning at least two generations, so you're picking that book up and it's the first one you read and you just suddenly instantly become a fan is extraordinary in terms of her writing ability. And it's you can tell she had such a vast career, but there's so many threads that kind of weave between them all. There's so many kind of parallels with this and the Prime Miss Jean Brodie. You know, she I think she she knew how to capture the same audience in the same way, like throughout her career. And it was, you know, thanks to this book is why I then went on to read all of her. I've not read everything, but I've read so much of another work since. I, I just think she's a genius. <laughs> Because I think everybody, and whether it's through the book, through studying it, or the film adaptations, everybody's kind of familiar with the Prime Miss Jean Brodie, and it's such it's an integral part of kind of our culture. But you know, the fact that there's twenty one other novels, and I spoke to one of the guests in the previous podcast, Professor Willie Maley from Glasgow University, who is an absolute fan and expert in Muriel Spartan, he would say there's other better novels and and, mm-hmm. and other ones even before you get to Jean Brodie, which is a brilliant novel in itself. I mean, I know that also the driver's seat is a lot darker and there's, I'm not entirely sure where the finishing school would sit in terms of the rankings of our, of our novels, but for me, it was the right book at the right time. A lot of the finishing school is about jealousy um, and about how jealousy can kind of eat you up to the point where you are unable to function normally. Um, and I think as a kind of late teenager with lots of ambition, that was quite an interesting concept to read about because you do feel like you want to do a lot of things and everyone around you is a lot more successful than you are. So that's why this book really appealed to me at the time. I guess Jean Brodie gets a lot of the attention. Obviously, there's the film with Maggie Smith, but I guess it's the most kind of classic coming of age type book that she has. But The Finishing School is a similar concept and it kind of plays around with the idea of finishing in itself and when are you finished and when are you a fully formed person which is why I think reading it in your late teens is such a good idea and I think even just something you just mentioned there which I think would be interesting for people to continue reading it at that age is you know that idea of and I think probably the pressures of the social media age particularly for younger people who are always maybe looking through 
their friends or people they know or people they don't know who seem to be living on the surface better lives and doing more interesting things and, and going places. It's, it's all superficial, but you can see why either people, that would affect people, whether it's through jealousy or, or you know, maybe it does affect them. And so it's just mm-hmm. a book like that, to bring those themes out, I think is quite interesting. Yeah, I definitely, I think especially social media, even probably more so now than when I was that age, I think we're obsessed with this idea of achieving things very young or even, you know, there's so many lists of like 30 to watch under 30. And, you know, if you're not a bestseller by the time you're 25, there's no point trying. (laughs) And I think you can kind of, even saying that out loud is ridiculous, but you can kind of, you know, internalise that. So, yeah, yeah, you're totally right. So any any teenagers listening to that, read The Finishing School by Muriel Spark. The Finishing School. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Tara Fitzpatrick. And Tara, we're on to the third book choice, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is a book by Max Porter with an absolutely brilliant title, Grief is a Thing with Feathers. I think this is a masterpiece. I adore this book. I read it about, maybe about three years ago now, and it's I, I still think about it. And I think, you know, for this question picking a book that you would recommend to anyone is really difficult because obviously everyone is so different but I mean for one thing on a really basic level this book is under 100 pages or just over 100 pages so even if you're not the biggest reader in the world this is not a daunting thing to pick up I don't even know if you describe it as a novel maybe more of a novella it's got elements of poetry a lot of it's very lyrical um, and it's split into really short sections from different people's perspectives so I think it's a really easy accessible read for people that don't know it's it's about a man who loses his wife and he has two young sons and a crow comes to live with them and the crow is this sort of mythical kind of metaphor for grief the book plays with the idea that the crow is in the dad's head and also that it's this kind of real living breathing animal that sort of moves into their house and becomes a member of their family. And I just think it's such a unique way of exploring the concept of grief and it could probably really help people. So yeah, that's why I chose it. Because I, I, as I said, I think I, I often judge books by their cover. So I, that will, that's what makes me pick mm-hmm. it up. I love a good title because it immediately, you know, that, that title, Grief is a Thing with Feathers. I think if you're in a bookshop and you see that, you're, at the very least you're going to put, pick that book up to find out what it's about. And as you say, again, I think sometimes people can be daunted by sometimes just the physical size of a book, thinking I'm never going to be able to read four, five, six hundred pages. So something kind of short like that. But again, interesting, you know, that that whole idea of kind of a meditation on kind of love and loss. And there was wee elements of that when we were talking about Charlotte's Web, you you know, at a a kind of kids level, talking about that issue as well. But that this takes on, obviously, to maybe for adults. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the same kind of theme of of death and tragedy. And what I really like about this book as well is that, I mean, in terms of recommending it to anyone, I think that if you're someone who has experienced grief recently, if you're someone that hasn't, if you're someone that has experienced it in multiple different forms, this book would probably speak to you because it talks about the kind of multifaceted sides of grief and the fact that it's not all doom and gloom. Grief can be cheeky and annoying and it can creep up on you when you least expect it and I think that's why it would take it would almost take any reader by surprise 
I also really like, you know, in terms of talking about linking it back to children. Um, so the book is told from different perspectives. So you get the dad and then you get the crow itself. You also get the perspective of the two little boys who've just lost their mum. This book kind of plays around with the idea that children know a lot more than we give them credit for, which I think is something adults just tend to forget generally. And, you know, we've all been there as children, whatever it might be, where everyone around you is telling you things are fine and you know that they're not. And this book is just really eloquent in the way it kind of explores that. I mean, in terms of recommended books, is that something that you do quite a lot in terms of, you know, if you read a book, you're desperate to then put it into other people's hands and say, right, you need to read this, you need to read that. You do come kind of evangelical about books that you love. I can do. I, li- I really like recommending books. I'm probably not very good at it. Um, my <laughs> friends would tell you, I'm quite bad at being like, I read this book and it's so great, but I can't tell you what it's about. It's just, you just need to read it. And they're like, right, you've sold, you've sold me. <laughs> Because I, I quite like reading books that are generally just about people in life. So sometimes I'm really bad at actually giving a synopsis or kind of explaining to you why you should read it. But I do, yeah. I mean, I think part of the joy of reading a book is then getting to talk about it and getting to pass it on to someone else. So um, there's no point reading something you love and then never talking about it. One thing I was going to ask you, because um, I've been quite curious about this in terms of <laughs> the last few months of the pandemic, and I've seen people and I've spoke to people and it's almost like readers have gone into two camps. Some people over the, you know, given everything that's been going on in the wider world, have maybe found it difficult to kind of focus or concentrate in books, whereas other people have then ended up reading more books because it's been a way of escaping some of the things that you've, you've maybe had to listen to or, or deal with. And have you found over the last year or so reading more or, you, or has it just been a constant still? I think I have largely read more. I think I can totally sympathize with the people saying that they just don't have the concentration span at the moment I have had to more so this year than or last year than any other I've really had to be disciplined with myself like I've had to like put my phone in another room or you know in a cupboard so that I can sit and read a book and not be distracted because it's so easy to just start doom scrolling on Twitter or constantly looking for news updates and so I've I've really had to be like right no I'm going to take this hour and I'm going to read and then when I do that, I feel better because I've totally switched off in the world and I've like escaped into a book somewhere. But I've had to be strict with myself and I don't think it's been easy for a lot of people. I suppose the nature of your job as well is that, as you mentioned earlier on, sometimes you feel it's as if you're working in an early newspaper rather than a daily newspaper. So there is the temptation just because you've got that phone at your side and you know exactly what's going on in the world at any given time that there is a discipline, as you say, to and people are so attached to their phones now it's almost breaking a real a kind of daily habit to put it out of the way. Yeah, oh no, totally. And I think, I don't know if most journalists would probably agree, but there is a luxury in a day off or when you've got a weekend to yourself to be like, I don't need to be totally on top of everything that's going on in the world at the moment. It's okay to not know what the breaking stories are and be able to switch off. And so, I've, you know, even if it's not reading, but watching a film, you know, anything where you're able to just escape into another place for a while has become a bit of a luxury for me. I mean, reading is probably one of the things that's got me through the pandemic, to be honest. Because I found I had some time off at the start of 2021 and it was great just because there wasn't much you could do anyway. So you'd go for a walk, but then just being able to spend a bit of time during the day sitting reading. And it felt, I thought, this is the life for me. Yeah, just completely offline altogether. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, everything's still going on in the world anyway, even if you don't, you don't have to know everything all the time. Now, in terms of the podcast, I take you from a book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again. And the book that you've chosen is A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, but it 
you know, you mentioned when we were corresponding, it's not because you hate the book. So why have you chosen it for this category? Okay, so this was maybe the most difficult category for me because I have, roughly, I have about a 100-page rule with a book. If I'm not loving it, I'll just move on. I just feel like life's too short and I'll find something else. So, you know, there are books I've, I've certainly picked up and then felt like they're not for me. And similarly, there's books where you know that it's trash, but you kind of want to know what the twist is at the end. So you keep reading, even though you know it's kind of rubbish. But I actually couldn't think of a book that I truly, truly hated. And then I, I looked and I, I saw the Clockwork, Clockwork Orange on my shelf. And I, I read this probably four or five years ago now. It's been a while since I properly read it. I just remember feeling really horrible about this book. I remember reading maybe it's about halfway through putting it down and then feeling like I, I don't want to go back there I don't want to go back into that world I read it because it's one of these books that's on it's always on the lists of like you know 100 best books of all time or books you have to read before you die all of this and I can appreciate what it's saying about free will and about human choice and you know how much of our choices are controlled I cannot I can appreciate all of that I just would rather never read this again <laughs> for people that don't know it's about a teenager called Alex who is a horrible person and has a night of with his pals a kind of gang going around causing mayhem indulging in extreme violence and rape um, and then he is then arrested and picked up by the state and the state perform these kind of thought experiments on him to try and control his free will that's essentially what it's about but yeah not for me not for me because it's quite a challenging book to read because it's written in because he's made up this language of kind of yeah. I think it's called NADSAT, so it's like yeah, kind of yeah. youth kind of slang. So it, just even in terms of approaching the book and, and reading it, it does take you a while to get into the kind of the, the rhythm of what they're saying and what they're actually saying, because obviously it's kind of slightly familiar to the actual word in English, but it's changed it a bit. So that in itself, yeah. also, I also read, again, I'd, I'd need, when I was just doing the research, that he'd written certainly the first draft in about three weeks, which I think is just extraordinary. He's mad. That's totally mad. I didn't know that. That's mental. But I've, it's one of those books I've read once and I enjoyed it, but I, I'm, I'm not sure if I would go back and, and read that yeah. again. I think that's why, you know, in terms of this question, something you couldn't be paid to read again. I'm not necessarily annoyed that I've read it. I'm, I'm glad that I've read it, even if it's just purely because there's so many pop culture references to this book and also the film version, which I've not seen. There's so many things that you can pick up on. You're like, oh, that comes from there and this. You know, it's mentioned in The Simpsons and stuff, like it's everywhere. So, you know, from that perspective, I'm glad I understand it. But it's just, and you know, as you're saying about the language and the way that it's written is really hard to kind of grapple with when you first read it, which is why when it gets to like some of the really horrific things that happen, you know, there's a gang rape at one point and you kind of don't, it takes you a minute to work out what's going on. And then when you realise what they're doing, it, it's all the more horrible that's obviously the point of the book I get that I yeah it's just really unpleasant because <laughs> one, th- one thing I like you mentioned there about your 100 page rule which I've kind of got yeah. as well and I think a lot of people which and that's one of the reasons why I think people find this so there's two reasons why people find this question difficult one is people don't like to criticize a book quite often because it's a subjective thing and somebody's mm-hmm. put their heart and soul into writing it the other thing is if you don't finish books that you don't like it's hard to have that lasting negative impression and at the start of the year start of 2021 I I wanted to start reading 
Ulysses with James Joyce. I've had a copy oh, yeah. uh, for years and years. Somebody gave me it as a, a leading present years ago. And so, and a couple of people have said to me, look, you just need to read it and let it wash over you and, and just mm-hmm. get into the flow of it. So I'd got to about 60 or 70 pages and I'd read about 10 pages and I was like, to my wife, I said, you know, I've read 10 pages. I've no idea what I've read. It's just words. I've, <laughs> I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand the references. So I've had to put it aside for just now and then I'll go back and have another go later because it was just, I thought, I'm just going to get bogged down in this. Something like Ulysses is hard as well because there's so much legacy to that and there's so much discussion that you, you'd you read that and just be like, what am I not guessing? Like, what, what, what is it about this? I've never read Ulysses as a whole. I've dipped in and out of it, but I've, I'm yet to like actually properly read it. Um, there was a good, the Tron Theatre, a couple of years ago, did an adaptation for the stage of Ulysses, which I loved, which was really good fun, but I still don't think it would make me fully prepared to read the actual book. As I say, I usually give a book about two or three goes, you know, so I'll go back to it at some point and I'll try again. And then if, if after the third attempt, it's still not happening, then it's just not for me. So, you know, you, you can't love every book. Yeah, I think that's it. You, I never want to say never, you know, with, with books that I put aside. that's I think that's why I end up going with A Clockwork Orange, because I know, more or less know for a fact, I won't read this again. I, I really won't. But that most books, you know, you might just not have been in the right headspace and you might come back to it in a year's time and you, you're like, oh, I get this now. So you never want to kind of close yourself off to something. And it's interesting. I've, I've had a few journalists on the podcast over the year and, and when that question comes up, usually they say, well, listen, if somebody paid me, I'll read anything. Well, this is it. It depends what you're paying. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, in terms of obviously, you know, your job, you're, you're writing every day. You're obviously a, a prolific reader as well. Do you... Have you ever had any aspirations or do you in terms of wanting to write your own fiction at any point or have you? Have you tried? I've not properly tried. I'd be lying if I said that I've given it proper attention, but I would, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to write fiction at some point in my life. But at the moment, and I'm, I'm sure other journalists will have said this in the past, that when you're writing every day, it can be really, it can be a quite a weird thing to switch off by writing. Um, you know, when I kind of put the laptop down at the end of the day, the last thing I want to do is then write, get a Word document up and then start. And, and, and also as a reporter, you know, I'm in live news. So most of my training and my job, and even from when I was at university studying journalism, was to write in a way that was really to the point. So, you know, your most important information is in your top line and then you hit return and then it's the next line and then it's the next. And you have to be bold and upfront with your facts at the beginning. And obviously with fiction, it's completely different because you're wanting to sort of tease the information out, keep the reader's curiosity for longer. So I think I would really have to sort of train my brain to work in a different way, which would be, which would be a challenge. But I'd, I'd like to try it at some point, for sure. I suppose the thing is, if, you know, anytime you ever read anything in terms of advice to give people who want to write, and the two things are the most basic thing is, one is you need to write, but you need to read. So you're kind of halfway there anyway in terms of, Obviously, you're doing a different style of writing, but the fact that you're reading, that's part of the process because you're everything that you read, you're taking something on board in terms of whether it's plot, structure, character, dialogue, anything at all, and, and what you enjoy as well and what works as a book. So you're kind of halfway there already. Yeah, I think you're only as good a writer as you are a reader. I'm, yeah. I'm, going, to, I'm going to ruin this phrase, what is it? It's you read like a bee and write like a butterfly. Is that the right way around? So you kind of, when you read things, you kind of take from here and you take from there and you take inspiration. And then when you're writing, you're like a butterfly and you use all of it. Right. Um, I've never, but... I've never heard that phrase before. <laughs> it might be the other way. I'm pretty sure that's right. The only but time I've heard that, that analogy was obviously <laughs> Muhammad Ali 
what is float like a butterfly sting like yeah. a rainbow. It's obviously yeah, keep, yeah that's obviously that. a reference to it. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, no, I quite I quite like that as a way of thinking. Like you, when you're reading, you're kind of taking inspiration from everywhere. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah, every day is a school day. Yeah, I mean, I also think like kind of back to what we were saying earlier about when you feel like you have to achieve everything really young. I, one of the best books I read last year, I think, was a best book for lots of people was. Uh, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. I just adored that book. It was brilliant. But that was her first novel and she's in her 70s. And I, mean, I think she she was a zoologist. So I think she was a writer of some sort before. But that was her first novel piece of fiction. And I just, I want more stories like that of people doing something for the first time when they're in their 60s or 70s. I think that's really inspiring because, you know, you've got lots of time to do mm-hmm. things. So. Absolutely. No, I, f- I listen, I find that anytime MD who gets older and still breaks through, because I think it gives everybody confidence. As you say, if you can write, you know, and there's some great writers who have written some amazing books in their 20s and even into their 30s, but that's not to say that people in their 50s, 60s, or 70s couldn't just produce something that's equally as wonderful. Totally. And you're bringing so much life to it and from, you know, different areas of your life, places that you've worked and places you've been. So, yeah, definitely. I'm I'm hanging on to that hope as a guy in his fifties now. So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's plenty of time. So I've got twenty years before I, I write my my uh, where the crawdads sing. Yeah, breakthrough. Exactly. And I think that was like the best. Don't quote me on this. I think that was like the number one book of last year in the UK, like read or at least purchased. So there you go. That's really successful. We are on to the the fifth and final question in the podcast, Tara, and that is either the last book you've read or the book you've currently reading. And we've got two books that you've chosen here. And the first one is Bleak House by Charles Dickens. And that's a book you, you mentioned that you're reading for. Is it a book group that you're you're part of? Yeah, so um, my friend Melissa runs a book club and it, we've been running it for years. Obviously, it's a kind of virtual book club now. We just do it over Zoom. But it was decided a wee while ago that we'd set a kind of challenge for 2021. And so we decided to read Bleak House by Charles Dickens. It's a challenge. I mean, it's the, the copy that I have is over a thousand pages. And I know that people have a sort of Marmite relationship with Dickens. People really don't like reading it. I got on quite well with him. I quite like it. I love um, all his short stories and his ghost stories and everything. And I've read A Tale of Two Cities when I was at uni, which I really enjoyed. This is the biggest, I think, I think this is his biggest book. I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure this is his biggest book. And I think it's also largely thought of as like his kind of masterpiece, but I'm really struggling to, to, to get to get my head around it. The the kind of central plot, you know, the characters um, at the centre of it is all really interesting, but there is a lot of like legal jargon in here that half the time you feel like you need to kind of Google things or, or run to the reference pages um, while you're reading it. So it's a, definitely like a labour of love, but... I mean, Dickens is really good at writing about London, isn't he? Like, he's really good at saying nothing. So, I mean, do you have a, in terms of the book group, do you have a, is there a time limit? Do you, is there a certain point you have to hopefully have finished it by before you all just get together to discuss it? Yeah, so I think it's going to be kind of mid-February that we're going to be chatting about it. So I need to get reading. <laughs> I'm about kind of 200 pages in to give you context. So <laughs> I need to get reading. But it's kind of one of those... I actually am reading it quite fast when I sit down to read it. It's just not one of those books that I feel like, you know, if you've got a you've got a free half an hour that you might sit and read something, I really can't do that with this book because it takes me about that amount of time to get into it. So it's it's for my days off when I've got a couple hours I can sit and really, you know, 
light a candle and make a cup of tea and you know and then I can enjoy it so I think I think I will get through it I just need to really commit myself Uh, in terms of the book group how do you find that whole environment of obviously you know people different people will choose different books and that you all read it then you have your own opinion and is it quite interesting then listen to other people's perspective on a book and, and how it compares to you and, and maybe challenges what you think about it whether positively or negatively yeah no totally I you know there's some books I've kind of had a bit of a complicated relationship with or I've not really loved and then you've heard someone's take on it and thought I never thought about it that way so it's I think that's that's a really good thing also like there's been some books where people just have collectively not enjoyed them um, and you've maybe been sat there going oh no I, I kind of liked it but that's kind of that's part of the joy in it really it's also quite an informal you know since back when I was at university and we would be in tutorials where you had to read a book and then discuss it and it felt very formal because even if you really loved the book and you were discussing it you were always vaguely aware of the fact that you were being assessed for university coursework whereas with a book club you're just having fun and you're just talking about a book and there's no pressure so I think it's a really good I think for any reader a book club's a really good environment the only thing I was wondering is, is there a pressure? Do you is, do you all take turns in choosing what book that the, the group reads? And then if so, when it's your turn to choose the book that everybody reads, do you feel a bit of pressure thinking, oh God, I hope they all like this? Probably. I've, I've yet to pick a book. I've sort of recommended one along with a couple of other people um, or like someone suggested one and then I've kind of been like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. So I don't know what it would be like to be the one that had actually put themselves out there. I think that would definitely, I mean, I like we were saying earlier about if it was something that you read and you loved and then you're sat in a room with people that are tearing it to shreds, like that would probably bother me. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see. I, I actually, I've read a few, I haven't read Bleak House, I've read some Charles Dickens, but I discovered, and I, again, the whole world might know this and I might have been the last person to discover it, but on, like I've got an iPhone and there's the Weekend of Books app. And if you go on, mm-hmm. apparently, certainly during the, the lockdown, iTunes were putting a lot of books uh, available to download for free, but they put a lot of classics up uh-huh. as well. So I downloaded David Copperfield and oh, yeah. I've kind of started, I started reading the first uh, few pages just on my phone, just as I kind of to see what it was like. So I've, I've done it once before and I didn't really like it. And then I've kind of, uh, I've also got an actual copy of it. So I've been kind of just trying to, to read between the two, just to see what the, the experience is like. Because obviously if you're reading it on your phone, it's completely different from actually sitting with this big mm-hmm. massive book. But you know, it's, it's a really you know so far so good it's really enjoyable I wonder whether there would be a benefit to reading it digitally because as you say sometimes it's daunting when you're 100 pages in and you've got this the full like weight of the book under you it can feel like a mammoth task whereas if it was on a screen you're not really as much aware of what's you know how much left you have that's actually quite a good point I've never read David Copperfield but I did see the film version last year which was really really good I'd recommend that I suppose the other thing as well, if you read, because if you if you finish Bleak House and it is this big doorstopper, there is a kind of sense of achievement that you've actually managed to conquer this. Like, I can do anything now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I saw, um, or I, I heard that you read War and Peace last year. That's very impressive. Did you yes. enjoy that? I did, and again, I think because, kind of similar to what you were saying in terms of Bleak House, is that because we were in lockdown, you were able to spend maybe a wee bit more time to sit and read it and I was just reading it during the day and I was reading other things at night so I wasn't completely bogged down with it and I actually found that once I got into it it was actually quite it was quite easy to read and I did feel I did I just gave myself a wee cheer at the end when I'd finished it. It's been kind of a running joke with some of my friends as well you know 
whenever there was another level four announcement or another lockdown, it was like, right, time to read War and Peace. There's <laughs> so to like to talk to someone that actually did it is, is quite impressive. So, no, I was quite I was quite chuffed. Um, I, yeah. I'll never read it again, I'll have to be honest. <laughs> the other book that you'd mentioned that you've either read or you're currently reading is a book by Nora Ephron called I feel bad about my neck, and I think the other the subtitle of that is "And Other Thoughts on Being a Woman." This has been on my shelf for ages, and the reason I picked it up was actually just because a couple of friends had posted just online saying it was one of their January reads, and it was quite a good New Year. It's a collection of essays, um, and it was just quite a good kind of New Year positive book to read. And I needed something that I could read that wasn't Bleak House, um, that was kind of going to be a little lighter. These two, you know, Bleak House and Nora Ephron, they could not be more different um, if they tried. So it's quite nice to take myself out of the Dickens headspace um, and read something lighthearted like Nora Ephron. I love When Harry Met Sally, so Nora Ephron is a bit of a genius to me anyway. <laughs> quite happy to read anything that she writes. Well, I had this conversation over Christmas, actually, that my favourite romantic comedy is actually You've Got Mail. And I've watched it, because I watched it again, it's on all the time. She wrote, mm-hmm. directed that. I think she co-wrote yeah. that system. She directed it. Yeah, yeah, she did. And out of all those films, and I, and I don't know whether it's because of the whole book connection, you know, the, the, the big bookstore, and it basically moves into the neighbourhood and, and closes down all the wee kind of independent bookstores. And I don't know if that element of it appealed to me. I just think it's, I, that's that's probably my favourite. So obviously, you know, I've got a lot of time for, for writing that and directing it. Yeah, I, I, you've got mail is really good as well. I always felt really bad for the little bookstore, though. I was like, <laughs> I had to close. But it's so good. There's that, and then there's Sleepless in Seattle that she was involved in as well. I also really enjoyed that one. So, I mean, she's obviously great at her screenplays, but um, she was a journalist first. So I'm pretty sure this was published in 2006. This was like her returning to essay writing, obviously after having gone and been involved in Hollywood for so long. But this book is like a range of different topics. Some more lighthearted than others. Like she talks about the loss of a friend at one point. So some of it's quite dark, but by and large, it's just a really funny, lighthearted read. I'm really enjoying it. And does that, you know, obviously it's 14 years later. Does that still resonate? Is it still as relevant in terms of her writing essays about, about these subjects after all that time? I think so. Um, I think Nora Ephron's really good at kind of appealing to multiple generations. She talks here a lot about age, and she talks about growing old, but not in a very kind of dark, sort of grim way. There's a real positivity here about growing old and the fact that there's a lot to be cherished about, you know, not being in your 30s or your 40s anymore. But obviously, the, the, running, the, I mean, the title is about I feel bad about my neck. And she says that she wants young people to go and appreciate their necks because they don't last forever, which is something I've just never considered before. <laughs> like, I would never. So that's quite funny. But yeah, I mean, I think she's quite timeless, to be honest. She also just talks about New York in a way that makes me really want to go, which I obviously can't anytime soon. <laughs> but um, it's quite nice to go there on the pages with Nora Ephron. In terms of your reading, you know, you mentioned obviously a lot of people had said to you that that book was on their kind of January reading list. Do you know what you're going to be reading next? Obviously, you're, you're working your way through Bleak House for your book club, but do you have an idea of what you're reading next? Are you, is it just... Either something will come to you from the shelves or somebody will recommend something or you'll see something that you want to get. I mean, I do. I have loads of books. Just that I probably buy books about three times the rate that I read. I'm on a bit of a ban, to be honest, at the moment, because I'm spending so much money. <laughs> Was but, that a, um, a self-imposed ban, is that? Yes, it, has to, it just has to be done. But uh, yeah, I, I'm also, I mean, I can't really walk into a bookstore and not come out with something. 
so obviously lockdown is quite good from that perspective but um I do I had like so many books sat there that I've wanted to read for the longest time and I will eventually get around to them one of the ones that's definitely on my radar is Queenie by Candace Carter Williams that I mean that was a huge book of last year that I just never got around to and it's been sat on my shelf for the longest time so I'm hopefully going to get to that soon um but I mean there's a bunch of others as well I don't know if you read Maggie O'Farrell brought out a book last year Hamnet I don't actually own that yet because part of my book buying ban is that I'll wait till things are in paperback and then they're cheaper (laughs) Um, but everyone's been talking about that so I, I really do want to read that at some point that, I'm going to I'm going to leave you that with a, a recommendation because my, my daughter got me that yeah. for Christmas and I started reading it. I picked it up just a couple of days into January and I basically finished it within two days. It is utterly stunning. It's got one of the most heartbreaking sections of a book and saddest things I've ever read. It's incredible. I think anything I say wouldn't do justice to how absolutely brilliant that book is. Mm-hmm. No, that's really good to hear. I mean, kind of like with the Crawdads thing, I've heard nothing but like total praise for it. So I'm really, I'm really excited to get to that one. Yeah, I'll report back <laughs> if I enjoy it. Well, first first and foremost, you need to still keep wading your way through Bleak House for this book group. I know, <laughs> one thing at a time. I am, obviously I can read in these two books at the same time, but I am like a multiple books at once type of person, which is not the best habit in the world, but it's just the way my brain works. I'm definitely a better reader when I focus on one thing, but I'll be too tempted to pick up something else at the same time, so... Um, yeah, I've always got multiple things on the go. Because I'm always quite impressed. The two things I'm always impressed with people who read, one is that people who can read more than one book at a time, because I'm very much generally just focused on one book. And the other thing is people who can walk and read at the same time. I think that's... That'll never be me. <laughs> I understand that. It's, it's amazing and dangerous at the same time. Oh, totally, totally. People used to do that when I was at Glasgow Uni. People, I mean, people would do that wandering around like Byers Road or on... And I'm just like, there's traffic everywhere. Like, what are you doing? Uh-huh. Um, and there's just no way in my head. I'm like, there's no way you can be concentrating on what that actually is. There's just, it just can't be. Um, exactly. But I can do, I do read multiple things at once. Right. I do that. Well, listen, I'm, imp- I'm impressed with that. Sadly, we have run out of time in the podcast. Tara, um, if anybody wants to check out the choices that Tara's made in any of the categories, if you can go onto my website, www.paulcuddyhay.com, and I just, every guests will have a page and I just list all the book choices in case you want to investigate them yourself. Um, But thanks very much, Tara, for joining me on the the podcast. It's been really good talking to you about books. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.